on this episode of the Creme Project podcast. I believe that for things like this to be taken seriously and for us to actually make um, people acknowledge our humanity, which sounds really sad in a way, but it's the truth. We have to be able to kind of get into the same institutions that they've created and take up space within that. So I felt that the Black curriculum had to be done on a, on a nationwide level, made mandatory and be accessible to all students. We don't want to, you know, enter schools with the approach of diversity or just you need more people. That's not what it's about. It's not about adding more Black people to the history curriculum. It's about contextualising their experiences and contextualising the people that were taught prior to that. Um, and... Yeah, thinking about the connections that were seen and also unseen in history. So it's not just adding, but really integrating it line by line, as you said. So, yeah. Welcome to the CREM Project podcast. CREM is an acronym standing for Communicating the Race Equality Message Effectively. The project started in 2019 as a collaboration between three of the largest charities in the race equality sector. Race on the Agenda the Black Training and Enterprise Group, and the Runnymede Trust. The Creme Project podcast is yet another way that we can promote the work of these and other organisations working in the race equality sector. At this particular time in history, with black deaths at the hands of the police and worldwide demonstrations declaring that black lives matter, sadly, we have in this country a government that wants to downplay and minimise the presence of institutional racism. At this time, it is all the more important to give voice to those in the struggle. In each episode, we will be interviewing a representative of one of the organisations fighting for racial equality in Britain. But this will not just be a dry discussion on policy. This is about the people behind the campaigning and the experiences that shape them. So get ready for what will be a lively and inspiring discussion. If you're hearing this transmission, you, you are the resistance. You are listening to the Crumb Project Podcast. My guest this week is Lavinia Stennett, founder and CEO of The Black Curriculum, an organisation that believes that by delivering black history programmes, providing teacher training and campaigning through mobilising young people, they can facilitate social change. Lavinia was born in South London to Jamaican parents and her own experience in the UK school system could be best described as challenging. But she overcame those challenges to make it to university, and it is those experiences that have given her a passion to reform our education system. Before she'd even graduated in 2019, she had already started work on the Black Curriculum. Lavinia is the youngest of my guests on the podcast so far, and her organisation was only formed three years ago. But in that short time, she has made major inroads into changing our education system for the better, to better reflect the diversity of the UK's population. Achievements that have not gone unnoticed. She was named as Trailblazer of the Year by Hello Magazine and one of the Sunday Times 50 Women of the Year in 2020. So we're proud to welcome Lavinia Stennett. 
So, Lavinia, um, welcome to the podcast. Um, so I'll just go through um, the information that I have about Black Curriculum, and I have loads, but you can fill in the details about yourself later on. So the Black Curriculum is a social enterprise which was founded in 2019 by yourself to address the lack of Black British history in the UK curriculum. Their aims include, one, to provide a sense of belonging and identity to young people across the UK, Two, to teach an accessible education Black British history curriculum that raises attainment for young people. And three, to improve social cohesion between young people in the UK. So, um, you you set this up, it's now three years? Yeah, so this June would be three years legally, but we've been going since January 2019. So, okay, well, if before we get into the work of Black Curriculum, which we will do in detail, could you give me a bit of background about yourself? I mean, the question I usually start with, we start at the beginning, where and when were you born? So um, I was born to uh, Jamaican parents in South London um, many years ago. <laughs> um, well, I'm sure it's not as many as me. <laughs> and, yeah, South London is where I'm most of my um, life has been spent. Do you want to be more specific, South London, Brixton, Peckham, Croydon? Um, just South. <laughs> oh, not, none, of, none of the big three? None of the big three, no. Mm-mm. But near, near enough Brixton, yeah. So what were school days like for you? Did you go to an integrated school or, you know, were you the only black kid in school? How, how was it for you? Definitely not in South London. <laughs> but um, I did go to a private school, um, from year eight onwards, sorry, from year seven till the middle of year eight. Um, and I wasn't the only black person, but there were a few black people there. And school for me was, like, I just, I really loved education. I think it's something that I had been pushed into for uh, the beginning of my, like, early years. And I just, yeah, I just really liked the idea of getting lost and finding out things. So I really enjoyed going to school. I think I probably enjoyed the social aspect more than I did the studying, particularly in like year eight. And um, yeah, I think um, being a young girl and having all those opportunities at my hand, I really didn't understand at that time how or where my education could take me. So um, yeah, it kind of ended really soon. I got excluded. And then I oh. went to yeah, I went to another school in Brixton that was a state school and it was an experience, let's say that. <laughs> was it was it drastically different experiences from this private school that you went to to start yeah. with and then the state school in Brixton? Yeah. Was it like two different worlds? Two completely different worlds. Um and I think being in the middle of that, you have two choices. It's to continue who you are, you change who you are. And I think as adolescence there's minimal tools that you're given in school to help you kind of find your journey that's something you've got to just do yourself so I um yeah ended up getting excluded from that one as well right okay so what age did these exclusions happen what age was the first one and then what age was the second one so more or less the set like within years of each other so 13 14 and so was this these um kind of pivotal moments do you think you so you, you I'm taking it then that I mean you said you enjoyed school but mainly because like most people you enjoyed it because of the friends you had yeah, the social sure. aspect 
but I'm taking it then that you kind of rubbed up with authority of school the wrong way. You and the authorities didn't get on. Would that be right in saying? I would say, yeah, there was a conflict of what we both deemed to be um, respectable um, and how you express yourself. And, you know, my teachers were white, had a Jamaican teacher, had many teachers, and some understood me and they understood why I would do some things or how I would say things. And others were like, wow, this is just not, <laughs> this is not up the standard of the school. So, yeah. Um, so you, you yeah. think what there was a, a, a diff- differences in culture yeah. or maybe cultural misunderstandings is what led to this conflict that you had with, the, with teachers and with the school? Culture and class, yeah. Right, okay. So, and I'm interested as well, you said it was like worlds apart between the private school and the state school. How was that manifested? Was it in the curriculum, what you were taught, what was expected no. um, in terms of behaviour or was it more the academic side of it, the academic rigour? It was both. So it was like what you had access to. So when I think about Old Palace, which is the school I went to, the private school, that was very traditional. Like You had your own desk, you had all your books in there, You'd have Latin classes in the morning and you'd go to that English, history, French. You know, you're in a Tudor building. So even the environment you're in is very kind of old school. And you have this like, you know, enforcement that you're in an institution that's really important constantly. Um, so I think it's not only what you what I had access to and what the others had access to, but it's also what we were taught. Um, and the post opportunities within or outside of um, the school that were given. So, you know, you'd like have tutoring opportunities, you'd have field days, um, you know, we played lacrosse. So I feel like, you know, it was the the broadening of the experiences that really made me see what was available to, stu- mm. to state school students and then what was available to private school students. Um, I'd say within um, the state school I went to, um, the teachers were a lot more worldly, so they understood. I I think I got treated and I also understood them on a more kind of personal level. And I didn't really mm. feel that, that hierarchy that was really present in the previous school. However, yeah. the accessibility of um, like materials, inaccessibility of materials was really clear. And also um, the classroom environment was very different. Like the, the structure of the classes... Um, and also how you were pe- like penalised very differently in both schools as well. So, yeah. So you got excluded from both, but which would you say was actually a, a better learning experience for you? Was it that the, the private school that I'm presuming had a lot more resources and a, a broader curriculum, or did you feel more at home and less out of place in the uh, in the state school, I don't want to presume anything, so yeah. you, you fill in the details. Well, I, I think I enjoyed my school, private school, I really did. Like, I love French, I love Latin, like, I, I love just, like, everything. And um, I really felt challenged, you know, and I think that was that's really important for me to feel like I'm being stretched because when I went to the state school, I was like, well, I already know this stuff. Like, I kind of came in with this view of I've already done this, I know what I'm doing. Um, 
and yeah it, yeah I, I I felt like I was stretched in the in the first school so I would say that like there was a lot more academic rigor which I prefer but I mean to compare them is so hard because you know the state school taught me preservation skills it taught me skills that you can't learn in private schools it taught me how to like communicate right and um not just on paper so I think yeah they're both really they were rewarding and also very tough in their own way so yeah so you excluded age 14 yeah and then again age 15 yeah so this is your GCSEs times yeah so what happened with them? So I had to Did you go to another school and do them? Yeah, so when you when students are excluded from schools, you end up going to like people referral units. Um mm-hmm. and then you can choose what you want to do with your life. So um, I decided that I was gonna go to college, um, and study um creative writing. And again, this is like an amalgamation of both worlds. So I wanted to do creative writing because I was like something that I had practiced a lot in the private school. But then I always wanted to do drama because drama was something that I was exposed to in state schools and also in my primary school. And I loved the kind of arts. And I felt that within private schools, you were kind of driven one way or another. And I was like, actually, in college, I want to do everything. So I'd done creative writing, I'd done drama, done law, politics. Yeah. Um, so GCSEs, go on to A-levels or what? Then? Yeah, so i done my A-levels then. Um, GCSEs, A levels, degree. Now black curriculum. So, what, 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 what university and uh, what subject? Um, so initially, I really wanted to go to LSE um, to uh-huh. do law. Um, and I think at the time I was really concerned about having a respectable university. There was so much emphasis on mm. uh, the Russell groups and looking at lead tables. And I always felt because of the experiences that I had, it's almost like I had to doubly prove myself. So it's like I, uh-huh. I could I could get into any university, but I wanted to go to LSE. So I joined the like they had like this access course. I joined it, and eventually I didn't actually get in. Um, I was really disappointed actually. I was like banking on it, and that was to study law and anthropology. And then I was actually, there's an opportunity to go to SOAS and I'm going to take it. And the course available at the time was African Studies. And I was like, I'm going to do this. Um, yeah, so I enrolled at So SOAS. African Studies at, at SOAS. Mm-hmm. So now, so your path to university is quite an unusual one, isn't it? I mean, getting getting excluded is not that unusual, particularly for black kids in Britain, as you, as you yeah. know. But usually that sends them off on a path to, well, not to university. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have this talk about the school to prison pipeline mm-hmm. and excluded kids are more likely to get involved in youth crime, et cetera, et cetera. How did you manage to not become disillusioned with the education system having been excluded? What made you be able to knuckle down, get good A-levels and get into a Russell Group university? Well, as I said, I always loved, like, education and always knew always was told as well you're so smart or like you're too intelligent to be doing them kind of things or like you know get into education because it'd be like the it's the things that will open up the world for you so I always had this like voice in my head like you've got to go back 
make sure you like put your head down. And I really went for it. So I feel like, you know, it is a very unconventional path, but I think I'm, I'm not, a, I might be an anomaly um, and a statistic, but I think I represent many students who have the ability, but don't always have the opportunities to showcase what they're, what they are able to do, or even the, the people around them don't give them the opportunity or the belief. And I had people around me who were, as I said, just encouraging me. So I think um, I wouldn't be here without them. You are listening to the Creme Project podcast. So um, when I was checking up, doing my research on you uh, online, on the Black Curriculum website, it said, with your About You bit, during her study abroad in... Aeteria, some, some word I've never seen before in my life. Aeteria. You can explain what, what that is. Uh, she was interested in the way indigenous and colonial history was a part of the everyday and made accessible to everyone at all ages. So where, where was that place you were studying? So Aotearoa is the indigenous name for New Zealand. Um, ah. So I'd done a year, well not a year abroad, it was a semester abroad whilst I was studying at SOAS to go to New Zealand in the summer holidays to study Māori Indigenous Land Law and Kapahaka, which is the national dance. Um, right. And, it, yeah, it was there that it was really clear they know what they're on. So was it then during your, your time at SOAS that the idea for Black Curriculum was kind of born in, in, in your head? Yeah. So what, what year did you graduate? 2019. And that was the year, so you set up straight away, out of university, set up Black Curriculum. So you didn't even get another, you know, a job just to get some experience in the workplace? No, so I had set up the Black Curriculum whilst I was still actually, like, it was the crazy year. When I think back, I think back, I was doing my dissertation, I was running a student society, (laughs) I set up the Black Curriculum, I just came back from New Zealand. So there was a lot happening in the third year, but I think I just was like, this is, like, I had the opportunity to just do it, and I was, you know, a student on student energy. But, um, I, I... yeah, so when I left university, I was still doing the black curriculum and obviously I needed to have a job. So I was looking at like jobs that could help me finance myself, but I wasn't getting done. So I was like, like, whatever, I'm just going to continue focusing on the black curriculum. And hey. So what was it that made you feel that an organisation like this is necessary? Um, I think firstly, studying African studies in an institution that was still is in some ways uh, representative of a colonial history and knowing that I have this rich opportunity to learn and students who I studied with at the PRU students that I went to both the state and private school with never had the opportunity to really learn black history from a perspective that was really empowering and rich and upset me and I was like like there's plenty of students that I know that would have really benefited from this information. So I think that's the first thing. It's just the, I identify that there was just a lack of truth being taught and um, in an inaccessible way. Like why should we have to pay 9,000 a year to access basic information? And I also observed that the, like, cause I was involved in a lot of, you know, discussions and um, groups and, you know, Pan-Africans like Saturday schools. And, you know, I was exposed to that, but I saw that it's not mainstream. And I, I believe that for things like this to be taken seriously and for us to actually make um, people acknowledge our humanity, which sounds really 
sad in a way, but it's the truth. We have to be able to kind of get into the same institutions that they've created and take up space within that. So I felt like the Black curriculum had to be done on a, on a nationwide level, made mandatory and be accessible to all students. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that's, that's an important point, I think. So, I mean, you're, you're well familiar with um, supplementary education and obviously you know all about Saturday schools and that type mm-hmm. of thing, but you are very much about taking it into the schools and, and, and changing the curriculum and engaging with schools, engaging with government even, to have black history as part of the mainstream curriculum, not a side thing, not a once a month yeah. thing, an integral part. So... Okay, and I mean, I've got a list of all the things that you've been doing, but how has Black Curriculum evolved over the last three years? Mm. Not, not just, just in, I mean, I'm presuming you started off with just you and maybe you and a couple of friends and, and you're a big team now. Yeah. Yeah? So I'd say, for me, the structure and the idea is two separate things. So I'd say the idea has always been consistent. I've always said from the beginning that this is something that we're going to take across the whole UK. It's about building a sense of confidence and identity in young people um, where they feel empowered to like self-actualize. Um, and so I'd, I'd say that has grown exponentially. That idea has grown and been able to really um, be aligned with where people's minds are at, particularly over the last two years, following on from George Floyd. So I feel like the idea has grown and it's resonated more with a lot of people because when we started, it was like, mm, not so sure this is going to convince, you know. Yeah, was it we, it's more sort of, yes, we do that in Black History Month. Was, more, was that kind yeah, of Yeah, and, you know, there was a grant funder that actually did say in writing, not convinced this is going to um, improve or remove systemic race. And I was like, okay, that's your opinion. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, cases where we were coming up into people who just did not believe in what we were doing. So I'd say that's the first thing. Second thing is the team and the structure and, you know, how we evolve as an organisation. Yeah, initially it was, it was just me. And then um, I spoke with these two girls, Bethany and Lisa, who really um, were integral to the process of developing uh, the curriculum itself. And then there were people that I was studying with, Chris, Comfort, that helped actually build the curriculum and then we were taking it into schools. Ilhan Safar were delivering it. So, yeah, it's grown and now we have employees and we're an organisation. So, yeah. So how does it actually work? You've got a curriculum, you've got subjects that you think that school children should be taught. Do you go into a school and say, uh, give us a lesson a week or do you go into a school with a list of resources and, and books and say that you should be teaching this? Why don't you th- have a think about that? Uh, are you engaging with government education ministers to say these things should be added to the curriculum or are you doing all three? Everything. Those at the same time? Everything. So we do the in-school work, the workshops, we do out-of-school programs, similar to Saturday schools where we work with young people to encourage their participation in music and black history. We also our teacher training so we're offering training trainings I should say to teachers senior leaderships governors um and we also yeah have resources we have books coming out this year 
So we're trying every avenue and we're campaigning as well. So there's a lot happening. Yeah. So speaking of the campaigning, so you you did actually, um, you've engaged with government ministers, haven't you? I think, so I've got here, you you, uh, got a response from Nick Gibb, Minister of State for School Standards. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he reiterated that teaching black history was a choice and schools were free to do so. Um, and I seem to recall that um, the uh, education minister said something similar as well in that, you know, schools can teach black history if they want to. It's mm. an option. It's up yeah. to them. That's kind of the attitude of government, isn't it? That, you know, if, if schools want to, they can do. We're not forcing right. them. Yeah. yeah, it's a very laissez-faire approach. Uh, they've already emphasised their curriculum is broad and balanced. You know, we don't have to make another case against it, but it's clear that their curriculum doesn't have enough examples, which is why teachers aren't teaching it. So, um, yeah, they've kind of just said, get on with your work. <laughs> We're going to support you from afar. And good luck. So have you taken a different approach then? Are you kind of more now going directly to the schools in that since since the government are not going to insist that schools teach these things, place them on the curriculum, you're going to the schools or the education authorities one by one making these suggestions is that the approach yeah, sadly uh well i mean it's not sad because actually we find that we have a lot more impact and it builds a case for the government to get behind it so whilst you know they're stuck behind we are building up evidence we're creating impact and building a network of people who not only understand what we're doing but also are continuing that work um, over and above the work that we're able to deliver as a team. So it's actually worked in our favour, I think. Yeah, well, I'm going to go through some of the, the work that you've been doing. There's a lot of it that I've, I've been getting from your newsletters oh, that I've been amazing. subscribing for a while. So um, you've worked with 13 schools as part of Camden Learning yes. Hub. Well, 22 now. And you can... 22 mm -hmm. schools. Um, and so what? how does that... You're working with Camden. How does that so, work? Yeah. Um, so during 2020 21 we ran a series of trainings and um, audits on their curriculums um, to basically ensure that it was reflective of the level of which we want, you know, them to think about black history. Um, so, yeah, that was the majority of our work with Camden. Um, and 21 schools in Greenwich delivering teacher training, curriculum consultations yes. and audits. So similar thing as with Camden, um, competing curriculum reviews for some Haringey schools in history, English, science. Uh, so, so there you're you're trying to uh, integrate or make more representative the core subjects. So it's not so Black history is not an add-on subject or a part of the his just the history curriculum. It's in English, it's in science as well. How are you doing that then? How are you changing the, the English and the science curriculum? Well, well, yeah, it's not just history. Like our initial request, and I think the request that we're still asking the government for it is history, but history isn't everything. We as people exist in many modes and, um, you know, you talk to someone that is it's art, it's also um, English, so we have to be able to kind of make sure these subjects are thought about holistically rather than segmented into subjects. So, you know, with maths, we look at the origins of, like, geometry, um, even, like, really basic things like, like crochet. There's so much history within that that um, helps us to really understand 
how black histories have, have informed a lot of the things that we, that we don't even see um, as including maths or even science and the theories as well. So for example, taking science, you know, there was like a, um, in the 17th century, sorry, the 18th century, um, during the enlightenment, loads of um, ideas around um, what was seen as human and subhuman, those have informed a lot of the methods and processes that people are studying today. So we would draw on that and basically, yeah, just illuminate people's minds to like the, the bigger picture. You are listening to the Creme Project podcast. So is it, if it, with a case like science then, is it a case of you saying, oh, well, you should include this particular scientist who, was, who happened to be black, um, you should be talking about this issue, or is it a case of, did you know that this person or this thing that you're teaching was actually created by, invented by a black person? Is it that kind of uh, line by line intervention? Line by line. You, know, you should I mention love that, this. line by line, because we don't want to, you know, enter schools with the approach of diversity or just you need more people. That's not what it's about. It's not about adding more black people to the history curriculum. It's about contextualising their experiences and contextualising the people that were taught prior to that. Um, and... Yeah, thinking about the connections that were seen and also unseen in history. So it's not just adding, but really integrating it line by line, as you said. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're working with HarperCollins to review their Key Stage 3 History Teacher mm -hmm. Resource Pack. How did that come about then? Did you approach them? They so, yeah, they approached you. us. The book is now out. It came out on the 17th of Feb. Um, it's one of the first, actually, teacher resource packs with Key Stage 3 that is focused specifically on Black British history. And yeah, we reviewed it. Um, and I think it was actually written by teachers as well, um, commissioned by HarperCollins. So yeah. So is it that HarperCollins and maybe some of the other educational authorities, they are aware of yeah. your work, they say, oh, okay, we, we, we were thinking of doing this anyway. Would you mind taking a look at it? Would you mind checking it over and giving us your feedback? Yeah. Is that how it works? Okay, um, and you're even working with um, with the Welsh government, aren't you? Um, following the news that Black British history was to be made a mandatory part, mandatory part of the Welsh mm -hmm. curriculum, you've been in conversation with the Welsh government to support the introduction of their new curriculum material and yeah. delivery. Um, again, did they approach um, you? I think we approached them, actually, because we found there's so much synergy. You know, Wales is light years ahead of England right now in terms of the mandation of Black history. Um, and we also have things to offer them because we've been doing this for the last two years. So it's a cross-learning um, and cross-fertilisation of ideas and um, tools that we're using to think about what can we do to make sure this is done properly um, to support teachers in schools. So, yeah. Yes. Was it, was it in Wales that they erected a statue to um, first yeah, black head teacher yeah. last year? Yeah. So Wales are quite ahead, aren't they? Why do you think that is? Why do you think they seem to be more open, the government more open to um, suggestion than this one? I'm not sure. I think, I don't know. I think they've got um, more support, more awareness and also more, I guess, more of a reason. Not, I don't know. I just feel like they're more intricately tied in with the community. Hmm. So you've got three books coming out in yes. August um, with the DK yes. books. Um, so the titles are Legacies, Black British Pioneers, Migration, mm -hmm. Journeys Through Black British History and Places, 
important sites in black British history. So who's the target audience for that? And how did the, uh, that collaboration with DK Books come Yeah, out? so our books are for eight years plus. Um, we felt that it was really important for us to publish our books in the children's market, particularly because we feel like the narratives at the moment um, are, they don't have to be complex. They don't have to be, you know, really hard subjects. They can be broken down um, for younger audiences. And we felt that there was not that much out there for students of that age um, within those specific subjects. And um, we've got some really exciting people writing the forwards as well, which we will announce soon. Um, oh, you, you can't announce now, that here. Oh, no. But soon, <laughs> so keep your eye out. Okay. And, um, yeah, so the partnership came about, um, well, we, we wanted to write them, so we basically created a whole proposal, a pitch, and put it out to, to um, editors um, with the support of our agents. So we just took the usual process, and they were the ones that felt this was like a series they wanted to get behind. So, yeah. Right, so you, you've got so many projects on there. How big is your team now then? You said, you said it started off with just you and then you and two friends. How many of you is in your team um, now? Around 15 people. 15? Well, you've still got doing a lot of work for just 15 people uh, to be interacting with local authorities, going into schools, the direct delivering. Um, so, Lavinia, I just want to talk about some of the collaborations you're doing now because it, it's amazing. You've just been going for three years and you've got some big brand names that you're you're collaborating with um i think well, the first one was it marks and spencers in 2020 you mark you partnered with them so sparks reward yeah. scheme now i've got oh, a sparks fantastic. card yeah so it's the it's the it's the ms yeah. reward card so how does that work i can I, when i make a purchase at ms i can ask them to send my give my points to 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 black yeah so essentially works. online you link your card with your chosen charity and then for every spend okay a bit of money comes to us. Is that only for online purchases or is that in store as well? Right, okay. Right, I'll, I'll make a point of that then. So yes. I'm often in the MS <laughs> cafe as well. Um, and in 2021, you teamed up with yeah, Lush, yeah. Lush to create the TBH365 yes. Beth Bond. Right, What's so TBH365 stands for Teach Black History 365 and it also stands for To Be Honest 365. And that's a campaign we've had since 2019. And yeah, we basically teamed up with Lush to create little bath bombs um, so that, yeah, not only could we appeal to wider audiences, but um, it's it's something that was felt um, in the, like, the retail industry as well, because what we're trying to do is not only mandate it, so it's not just education people that are behind us. This is a nationwide movement. It's a nationwide effort. It requires parents. It requires everyone in society to really get behind it. So Lush really helped to amplify the message of TBH365 in a very beautiful way. Yeah. No, but I can see, um, obviously, the... Uh, collaborations with book publishers that makes sense and engaging with the education uh authorities but lush i wouldn't have thought that was a natural fit well, who, whose idea was that and why uh, you know a, a bath bomb it doesn't it, you know <laughs> that curriculum bath bomb it doesn't yeah. sit naturally together what, right, what made right. you think of that well i think we're quite innovative i think that's what one of our values as a team we pride ourselves in being really innovative and doing different 
things, being creative with how we work and translate the message outside because we want this to be successful. And the idea wasn't actually ours. It was, well, it was ours, but we were approached by Lush um, to do a collaboration via Instagram DM by one of their staff members. And then they took it to the management and I was like, yeah. Um, and yeah, we sat on many calls and um, between us came up with this idea to create a bath bomb that had the message TBH and it's got our logo on it as well. And so what, every one of those purchased money goes to Black Curriculum? Yeah, so they've finished now, but the campaign which ran from April to about June last year um, raised money for us internally. Right. Okay, now another collaboration I want to talk about. Very intriguing. Mm-hmm. Virgil Abloh and British Vogue. Oh, now, now, how yes. did that happen? Now, I know that the editor of Vogue now is a black man, Edward Enifal. Um, Virgin Abloh recently departed. Um, big top, top name, top of top clothes designer. How did he become involved with Black Curriculum? Rest in peace, honestly. He, he was a real light and... Um, he connects with the Black Curriculum back in 2020 when everyone heard about the Black Curriculum. And he was like instantly drawn to what we were doing. Um, he basically raised the fund. He was selling his Jordan Air One signed and the money would go to two charities, the Black Curriculum and Inquest. And so whilst that fundraiser was happening, I reached out just to say thanks a lot and we appreciate it. if there's any you know, other things that we could do together, let's, let's go. And he was like, sure. <laughs> um, so we had a call and it was in that call where I really not only understood that this is someone who understands what we're doing, which is important, but is willing to go the extra mile and um, translate that message to wider audiences. So as you know, Virgil um, has a Ghanaian background. He was born in the US. And our mission, whilst it is about um, embedding Black history into the UK curriculum and empowering students here, it's very much global. The Black Curriculum was really born in New Zealand. And when we're thinking about the British Empire, there's so many countries um, and people within the diaspora who were affected by, yeah, the legacy and the relics of this colonial legacy within Britain. So Virgil was almost the conduit between what we're doing in the UK and the outside world. And for that reason, we made him a patron. And yeah, every time we spoke, he was like on it. And that collaboration came... Because one day we said we wanted to create some merchandise and he was like, okay. <laughs> um, and we gave him like an idea. He was like, uh, initially it was supposed to be between, be between Off-White and uh, the Black Curriculum. And he was like, I've got a better idea. Let's do it between Vogue and Off-White and the proceeds come to you. And he literally on that call started designing the, the pieces. And yeah, um, just really thankful for him and his family. So what, what are these pieces, that, that, what was born out of this, this, this collaboration, design collaboration? Yeah, so there's three pieces. It's a hoodie that says, I support black education. Um, there's another T-shirt that says the same. And then there's another hoodie that is now sold out. But it says Vogue on the front. Yeah, and then um, the off-white symbol on the back. Yeah. Okay, what is um, black curriculum on there? No. It's, so it's just saying, I support... Bl- uh, black, black education. Black education. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so that they're available from where? So you can go to shop.vogue.co.uk um, or just type it on Google Off-White and Vogue Collaboration and see the hoodies there. Okay. And again, all profits go to Black Curriculum, yeah? Yes. So that was a touch, wasn't it? 
Yeah. You are listening to the Creme Project podcast. Okay. Uh, now, to give some background to our listeners, um, I have been um, pursuing you, if that's not the wrong word, for about four months now. Um, and each time I email you, I mean, it's only thanks to your assistant that we, we managed to set this up. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, but yeah. each time I email you, I get an automated message saying that you're out of office because you're working on your book, <laughs> Omitted, The Untold Black History Lessons We Need to Change the Future, yeah. to be published in May. Is it still on course for May? Uh, next year. So, yeah, it's out. Oh, May 2023. Yeah. Right, okay. So, how, how is that going? And and what's the, um, I mean, you can kind of work out what it's about from the title, but yeah. what's the process, the thought process behind it? Yeah. yeah, so I'm really excited about this book. I think it's going to be, it's going to be, for me, a process where I think between that journey that we've, you know, spoken about from school to, um, education, college, university, and now the back curriculum is really that thread that ties everything together. So what we're trying to do, myself and the editors, really uh, obviously illuminate aspects of black history that I think are important, that people really need to understand for the future, but using my social activism and my experiences as a way to kind of thread those together as well. So, um, yeah, the process has been really hard. <laughs> um I have never written a book before, um, but it's it's good because I'm learning and I'm really enjoying the research aspect of it as well. Um, and yeah, it's out next year. So, yeah. what what kind of a book is it? Is it is it um, is it another again another teaching resource or is it more your own personal journey, uh, more autobiographical? What what format is it? Yeah, it's, I don't think it's it's neither. So it's more uh, it's nonfiction. You can read it if you're a student. Uh, the, the target demographic is really people age 21 and above. Um, but it's, it's for everyone. It's, and ideally, what I'd love is for parents um, and people not only in my age bracket, but also who also went through the education system and didn't learn anything or much and have had to do their self-learning. And I want this book to really ground a lot of the things that we've learned, even though we might not have passed through an institution or been given like a certification to say what we've learned is right. But I think, yeah, um, this book is, yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> if you say so yourself, yeah, okay, well, I look forward to it. Um, all right, well, I think I think we've covered most of Black Curriculum's work right now. Is there anything major that you've got in the pipeline that I didn't touch on? Um, aside from the book, no, no. Well, good, good. I've done my research then. Well, yeah. I could go through all of your, your <laughs> newsletters over the last year or two. Um, so now, Lavinia, if we could talk more in general terms about the issues that, um, uh, the issue of education and um, how young black children fare in the education system. Um, so obviously, your own experiences shaped you and, 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 and fired that desire to try and change um, how well, how the content of the curriculum. Um, there's a lot of talk now about school exclusions and how black children are being um, excluded for less serious offences um, than their white counterparts. I mean, does, does the black curriculum uh, engage in that side of things or are you focused strictly on what is taught? Are you also involved in behavioural issues and the, ex the whole exclusion debate? So I feel like because 
um, a lot of our work naturally affects a lot of the experiences that students go through. It has to, um, it has to kind of connect with, uh, our strategy has to connect with that other organisations like Memorial Exclusions are doing um, and also kids of colour and I think also the debate is connected. So when we're thinking about like exclusion rates um, and also um, like discrimination within the classroom, it is, it is one of the same. So whilst we are focused more on the curriculum and like what's taught, it's a part of the larger kind of ecosystem, you know? So, yeah. Um, so what do you think of this debate now about black slang? Um, mm. So certain schools have banned, I think a school in South London in, uh, last year, mm. uh, banned the use of black slang in schools. Now, that is a, a very polarising debate because some some people feel, black people included, that, well, no, kids shouldn't be using slang in school because they're not going to be able to use that in their workplace. So, you know, they need to learn to be able to... It's fine to speak slang amongst their friends, but in school, as in the workplace, they're going to have to be able to speak the Queen's English. Um, what's your take on it? <laughs> Sorry, I have to say. Because it, it really... It affects me when we are having to become versions of ourselves that aren't us. And I think, you know, as part of building a sense of identity, that is you as a person becoming stronger in who you are, the way you speak, um, and not only being stronger, but also being able to be in spaces where you don't have to self-police or where you're not policed. And I think for me, that's the most important thing that, um, yeah, Black linguism isn't taken as something that is seen as um, lesser than the Queen's English or, you know, we've heard debates like this, like Patois isn't really like, it's not English. And I think, yeah, those arguments for me are redundant because who I am, I'm who I am in all spaces that's never going to change. So I feel like education has to absolutely include and, you know, support students in how they speak. Okay, how they speak is one thing, but what about how they write? Should black slang be, should they be allowed to use slang in assignments, in essays? Yes. yes. So, but I'm thinking, I mean, if you were from a different country that spoke a different language, mm. you wouldn't expect to use that language in school. You realise that you may speak one language at home with your parents mm. and you've got to speak English and write in English in school. So doesn't, it, doesn't the same thing apply to, to that even, even more? Well... Maybe not more so, but yeah. you know, doesn't, doesn't doesn't the same rule apply if you speak a different language at home? Mm. Um, I think it's important to realise that a lot of these norms were created within the colonial environment. So, you know, when the English came in and through missionary work and also through uh, the church and uh, education as uh, colonial officers, they would banish the speaking of um, African languages within those institutions. And that was not something that was done before. And I think these these practices have obviously evolved over time and we've come to a norm that, you know, situates how we speak outside of official institutions. And I feel like, you know, decolonizing isn't just changing what we what we teach, but it's how we do things as well. And I'd, I'd argue that, I'd, you know, I'd like to see, if we can teach English and Spanish, then we can also teach English and you know, black linguism, I think they're one of the same. So, yeah. So you think it should, not only should it not be banned, it should actually be taught yeah. in schools? Yeah. You're right, okay. 
Um, all right, final thing I just wanted to mention to you uh, was the um, the recent story um, of the Birmingham City footballer Troy Deeney. Mm-hmm. He's been basically echoing what you've been saying, calling for the teaching of black, Asian and minority ethnic histories and experiences to be compulsory in schools. So, I mean, I don't have to ask whether you support him, because I'm sure you do, but I'm just wondering if, I mean, you've got so many big brand name collaborations already. I just wondered if you've spoken to Troy, if he yeah. supports your organisation, <laughs> if he's a patron or or if you've got anything going on. Yeah, so we have something going on. I can't say what it is yet, but there is something. And Troy is a great supporter of the black curriculum. Um, and I think there's a necessary shift in um, advocacy for specific causes within education. So... Yeah, I'm really happy he's got behind our work. Okay. All right, Lavinia. Well, thank you very much. That's all the questions I had. Oh, no, I've just thought there was one other thing I wanted to talk about, which is not really about curriculum, but it's about black children and exclusions related to that. Uh, Are you familiar with the Halo Project? Yes, I've heard about them, yeah. So that kind of links with the the slang thing in that it's, you know, about taking your your whole authentic self to school with you. so certain children have been excluded for wearing their natural hair to school in styles that the school don't feel are appropriate or fit in with the guidelines of uniform. Mm-hmm. I'm taking it that your attitude to natural hairstyles is the same as your attitude to, to slang. Yeah, I think if your hair grows out your head one way, then you should be able to like flex it how you want, how you want it without it being so, so you're talking to obviously you're working with a lot of schools. Do those issues ever come up as well as you're just looking at the curriculum and what is being taught? Do you talk about issues like hair and slang? They come up so much, particularly from students. So when we come right. in with the students, the students are talking about colorism, they're talking about sexism to a lesser extent, but they're definitely talking about um, you know colorism and and as it relates to their peer relationships with other black students. Um, they're also talking about prejudice within, you know, hair and texturism, like the students are on it. And there's a lot of issues that come up in discussions with students around those specific themes. So, yeah, with, in terms of hair and slang and, and the, the what kind of conversations do you have with the schools? Because you said about the pupils bring it up. But do yeah. you also make suggestions to the schools about ways that they should be tackling this issue? Yeah. So when we're talking about um, you know, delivering training to senior leadership. It's not just about, this is what should be on the curriculum. It's about your policies. And it's also about thinking about um, approaches that can be taken to really restore um, a lot of the issues students are facing. So we are very proactive with our training um, on those issues. But then sometimes when students bring it up, we will make, maybe mention to a teacher, you know, this is an issue we've seen, you know, what are your thoughts on this? What's been done to kind of tackle it? Yeah. That's all for this episode of the Creme Project podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more about what we do, you can go to our website at www.cremeproject.org or check out our channel on YouTube. So until the next episode, the struggle continues. If you're hearing this transmission, you are the resistance.